do I have people in my life? And I would suggest in addition to my spouse, if you're married, with whom I can share intimate details about my life that I might with other people feel shame in sharing, but with this person, I do not experience shame. And I am able to be uh, truly aligned. Um, and we need to cultivate those relationships. My name is Timothy Eldred. Today, I invited one of my favorite people to join me in a conversation on rhythms that lead to authenticity in life. Mark Ostreicher, Marco, as he is best known, has spent decades training pastors how to manage life and leadership. I knew that he would bring brilliant ideas to our conversation, but as always, he exceeded my expectations. You might want to take notes. This is the Authentic Pastor Podcast. You know, I love that we can have a countdown clock and jump right in without all the rigmarole of, this is my friend, Marco Stryker. The, um, because usually I don't like to admit to people that Marco Stryker is my friend. <laughs> as you're as you're drinking your coffee, that was perfect comedic timing right there. Yes, that's right. Or something like that. I'm two fists so, in it this morning. I just ran out of mine, and so it's going to be a long conversation without coffee. So, hey. Um, thanks for taking the time. I'm really looking forward to uh, the conversation, especially on um, the little bit back and forth we've had on this issue of authenticity in general. But um, I know that if I want to talk to somebody that has a has done research, right? A lot of us can BS our way through a conversation. Uh, we've learned how to do that. At least I do. I mean, I, I know that I BS my way through a lot of conversations, so I don't look like a putz. And um, how's that for authenticity? A putz with people when I walk into a room. And um, I do that even with you, you know? Um, and I'm not afraid to admit that to you. That I mean, I've said this to you before, that there are just times where as much as I don't ever have to worry about um, anything you think, because you'll tell me, I I still think, dang, that guy intimidates me, right? The um, which you do, and it's which is a little you, weird to me because in our circle of friends, it's a right. big circle, right? We're talking 30, 40 people that I would consider our circle of friends. You're one of the very few in there that I think of as a true peer. We're similar in age. I know I'm a little older, but we're similar in age similar in experience right so it is it it that is a little odd to me i will say it well it has nothing to do with you really it's really about me right okay fair enough yeah. yes well it's it's not it's not to say that um no I, i'm intimidated in some ways only because i know when, like i said when we have a conversation i know that you're not pulling things out of your butt mm -hmm. um you really are well-researched, well-read, well-experienced. And I know what I'm going to get, like in our conversation today, has got a lot of meat and merit to it. But it's my own, um, you know, you think it'll grow that. Maybe some people have. I think I've grown, grown 90% of it, but there's still 10% of me that still feels inadequate. Mm. And so I, I yeah. could be 
I could be the smartest guy in the room some days. Um, and I'm not saying that I am nor that I should be, but I, I really could be. I could be the smartest guy in the room on a topic. Sure. sure. And I probably still would feel inadequate in that. And that's just probably a wound that I carry. But I think that's part of the whole issue or for me of one of the issues of what why inauthenticity creeps into my world and why I need to work so hard to cultivate it internally. You know, I, I think, Tim, that uh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 go. I, I think it's interesting hearing you describe that and the work I do coaching ministry people. Um, I see that in a lot of them, of course, in fact, uh, more than 50%. There's another segment that I would fall into uh, where my shadow side, my trap, my uh, my pit that I can slip into rather than operating out of insecurity is operating from arrogance. Um, mm-hmm. And I think... Some of that for me is I, I was always a pretty naturally confident person, uh, and I I got rewards and promotions and uh, salary increases and uh, ego strokes for that. And so for the first, you know, tw- 30, probably the first 30 years of my vocational life, um, I, I was just regularly affirmed for being an a-hole is the blunt truth about it. And, and I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but, um, I remember specifically at one church, um, I was told by two guys who were overseeing me, two guys that I saw as mentors that I aspired to be like them. They very wrongheadedly told me my lack of mercy was the strength of my leadership. And what is what a horrible, what a horrible thought. That that's is exact, leading someone down the wrong path. That, man. But that's the exact quote. I am exactly quoting them. And I, I took that in because it was coming from mentors. And uh, I very specifically remember a day. Uh, fast forward 10 years from that moment, sitting in my office at a church, I was the executive pastor of a large church, and I had three meetings in a row where I I spoke truth that I thought needed to be spoken, but I did so in a way that was not compassionate to the person who was hearing it. And it was an act. I is As much as your insecurity might cause you to put on certain clothing. I don't mean literally a a, 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 a role and, and step into a role. My thinking that speaking the truth was the outfit that I put on. It was the clothing that I put on. And in, in those three meetings in a row, I made three people cry. And the first one, I thought, oh, they just, that's what happens when you tell the truth. And the second one, I felt a slight moment of disequilibration of being off balance. Mm. And the third one, it all came crashing down. And it was the beginning of a, of two decades now of wrestling with what does it mean 
for me to be still a strong and decisive leader, but one with compassion. Um, and uh, that's a real that was a really different idea. It's that sounds crazy to some listeners because that's just not their experience. But I, I find that there is a segment that um, operate in that space too. They're probably not the people listening. The people who need to hear that are probably not the people listening to the authentic pastor. <laughs> yeah, let's hope. Right. Now, I think so. For my story with that might be that um, I think I first started to get accolades um, for being the um, shock person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say things shocking yeah. in, in, in youth ministry circles, national yeah. youth ministry circles. And pretty soon now I'm being hired to say things to shock yeah. people. Yeah. And um, matter of fact, I think it was your last year at as the president of YS, you were stepping out. Um, our friend Mark Matlock was filling an interim role or stepping in there for a while. Mm-hmm. And I was doing main stage in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And I knew exactly why, what they wanted me to say. And because um, mm-hmm. they knew I would say it. Yeah. And, um, and my whole message was, I mean, it had some sexual innuendo undertones to giving students the chance to do something for the first time. And, um, and I knew that it would, I knew that it would, um, literally get the attention that I wanted and get the point across. But it, at the end of the day, I don't think I would do it today because it's not near as effective, but I did it then. And I did it for a long time to be that, you know, my other podcast actually uses the title, the square peg in the round hole. And Cindy tells me quite often, she'll like, you don't need just to say something just to get people going. There's a different way to start this conversation. And so like your lack of mercy, um, which was someone validated, you look back and say, okay, been 20 years and I've learned how to do that differently, right? And I have too, finally, to say, okay, I can have a much more effective conversation without having to be the throw shock value in or just be so countercultural to the ministry yeah. world that it gets people to take notice because you might be doing greater damage um, through three honest conversations without mercy, just like I might be doing greater damage instead of you actually bringing people on board. Either way, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. We're, it's putting on a persona, right? Yeah. Which is, which is the, maybe you could say the opposite of authenticity, right? Um, I remember, uh, it, this reminds me, I was sitting, there's, there's a guest speaker. I'm not on staff at my church, but they let me preach a couple times a year. Um, and there's another guy who is a seminary buddy of my senior pastor, and they have him preach once or twice a year also. He doesn't live in the area, but they bring him in. And I just cannot stand his preaching. And once I was, like, I don't go to church when I know he's going to be there. It just drives me nuts. But there was one Sunday I didn't know he was going to be preaching, so I was stuck there, right? And um, I spent time in the middle of the sermon trying to figure out what is it I don't like about this so much? Because his content was actually pretty good. And he was also, I would say, pretty vulnerable. Like he would share um, 
things that didn't make him look very flattering or he would flare things he would share things that had some level of deeper honesty but he had a whole bunch of tricks that he employed like he would use fancy pronunciations of words like he would say constantly he would say the holy spirit instead of the holy spirit um and he also would break into this scottish brogue um on a regular basis after having established that was his like family lineage and people ate it up i hated it because it became like he was acting and in the middle of that sermon the aha to me was there's a difference between vulnerability and authenticity he was being vulnerable but he was not being authentic and his inauthenticity eliminated the benefit of the vulnerability um, it's interesting would, because so many well so many people now are equating right they see vulnerability and authenticity as synonyms. Now. Yes, right. Because vulnerability yeah. is the new buzzword, catchword, and I love the the conversation and the research and everything like Brene Brown and others are doing on it. And so everyone's talking about it, but now they're just equating that these are the same thing. But that's a great illustration of where it's not. Right. It's just yeah. not. Yeah. So... I was thinking um, in a conversation I had this morning about what I do in my own life to cultivate mm. authenticity. And I do think vulnerability is important and um, in the right place. Absolutely. See, I, in, I, well, absolutely. In, 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 I think what, but vulnerability is a subset of authenticity. Okay. So in a lot of the conversation I have on this podcast, we talk about when to know, when's the discernment, when to know, when to be authentic. And I think that's the wrong conversation because I don't think there's ever a time not to be authentic. I think there's a time not to be vulnerable. Yeah, that's a good point. Yes, agreed. Yes. And I think I have been, even in my conversations recently, not clarifying that well enough as you just did. So I've got to give that a lot more more thought as I continue on down this path of trying to help pastors with authenticity realize to discern between the two. Because mm -hmm. you should always be your authentic true self. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you're always vulnerable or even transparent. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting. But I sent you an email last week on this issue because, like I said, I know that when we have a conversation, I'm going to get real insight that you don't that you've gathered and gleaned from someplace else. And we talked about this issue just briefly of rhythms of authenticity, which again I think is um, a part of how we cultivate it, how we reveal it, but really how it is nurtured in our life. And you sent me back a list. And I'm like, man, we'll never get through this because they can podcast because it's so good. But I think that's one thing that I love about our relationship and um, is because there is authenticity in it. I do not have to shade my vulnerability with you and never, I mean, even though I say you intimidate me, um, you're still one of the handful and you know, that handful of people that I will pick up the phone and go, I, I can't carry this. Mm. 
Mm. I just can't carry this. I need someone to know what's going on, how I feel about different things. We've talked about careers. We've talked about age. We've talked about next seasons. And, um, you know, and you've honored me by saying it, listen, I want to share something with you that no one knows. And um, so thanks for that. And that's why I know we can have this conversation without worrying about who's listening, what they think, and they'll glean something from it. Like I know I'm going to, as we unpack these, but when I say rhythms of authenticity, and I actually stole that line from something that you had said in a previous either conversation or correspondence, what do you mean by rhythms of authenticity or rhythms that lead to authenticity? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I guess uh, these are practices that have a sense of regularity to them. That's how that's how I fit the fit it into the metaphorical language of rhythms. Um, well, and the reason these... the reason I uh, the reason I love this is because Marco, sometimes I talk about things philosophically, right, ethereally, out here on authenticity, and you, I don't always make it practical um, in some in a, in a way that can be implemented. That's that's why. I had to interrupt you there because I know these are practical steps. Yeah, right. So we're going on where you were. Should I dive into the first one? I think I just dive anywhere you want because I'm still, I'm still drowning in them a little bit. <laughs> okay. I, I really am. I, I, I mean, one of them, I actually said to, you know, Kelton, who's producing this, I said, I don't even know what the hell that one means. So I'm going to be cool. quite excited for that one. Cool, so cool. I had to well, look, I had not. to look up a word. I had to pull up a thesaurus on the <laughs> word singulate. So let's, let's oh. end with that one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, that, that one's really excited. It, it not to correct you on your podcast, but it's singulate. Singulate. Well, it, 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 it could be like disintegrate. It could be like disintegratus. <laughs> we found out today that that's not a word either. So we already, we already, we already pulled up, you know, you know, dictionary.com already before our conversation started. So, so these, uh, my response in that email, uh, I think I came up with seven thoughts. It was just a brain dump, right? Um, but certainly the first one that uh, I thought is a rhythm that leads to authenticity is true friends who will call you on your BS. It's a good place to start because we've just been talking about how you and I are that with each other. Um, and, you know, I, I thought maybe this would be a moment to introduce a, uh, theory of belonging that I have found so both challenging and helpful. And I, I don't know, Tim, if you've heard of, um, Edward Hall and the, uh, the theory of proxemics, but he no. contends that there are four spaces of belonging that every one of us need. Um, and I guess I would start with, since this is an authentic pastor a podcast, uh, uh, maybe I'll start with a theological grounding. Our desire for belonging, which has become, it came from youth cult. I mean, we've all, we all have a, a need for belonging, uh, but the fact that it's so white hot these days first came from youth culture for ways that I won't... Uh, reasons that I won't take the time to explain right now. But it is broad in our entire culture these days, this uh, this dominant need to find meaningful places of belonging. 
it would be easy to interpret that as an indication of brokenness. And there might be some aspects of that in how white hot it's become. But ultimately, we need to remember that our desire for belonging is actually an indication of the Imago Dei. We're made in the image of God and belonging pre-eternally existed in the relationship of the Trinity. So I desire to find belonging because I'm made in the image of God. It's a good and beautiful thing that, like all good and beautiful things, can be distorted. Now, back to Hall. He says that there are these four spaces that we need to belong in, all of us. Public, which is public belonging is you and I are both University of Michigan fans. Now, you and I have a deeper level of belonging than that. But when I walk past somebody in an airport wearing a U of M sweatshirt, I feel a sense of belonging to that person because we're we're connecting on an external factor, right? That's public. Then there's... Uh, social. Think of that as uh, party banter. You're sharing bits of information about your life, but nothing that's uh, vulnerable or revealing in any way. Then there's personal. And now we're sharing uh, much more vulnerable information, but nothing that would cause us to risk feeling shame. And then there's intimate belonging, which is where we can share everything about ourselves and not experience shame. And Hall says that we all we all need to find belonging in all four of those spaces. Uh, but there's certain quantities to them. Like I can only maintain a very small amount of belonging with people at an intimate level, whereas I can have a little bit more at the uh, personal level, quite a bit at social level and an infant number at the at the public level. And community happens, by the way, when those four are organically allowed to coexist in a culture. This is really instructive for us in our like churches that, like Jesus, we need to allow people to belong at whatever level they choose to opt in. Um, but in terms of our topic here today, Tim, um, There's just a rhythm I need to practice if I want to live an authentic life where I have true friends who will be at that intimate level where I can share the most intimate and honest truths about my life without feeling shame so that uh, those friends also have like the permission to call me on stuff. Yeah, I like the word permission there. I've been just thinking through you talk about there's got to be a balance, right? And I think there are times, and I wonder about this with generational leadership and young people who are in a pastoral capacity that don't, maybe have not cultivated the discernment to know when there's a line between your public and your intimate. And all of a sudden we go, I would need more belonging, any more accountability to your intimacy. And so they overshare in the wrong place. They're searching for a level of belonging in a place that doesn't exist yet, like public. And so yeah. they cross that line mm-hmm. in public searching mm-hmm. for something that you're not going to find there only to be, you know, disillusioned that it doesn't exist. Yeah. I think or also, you've done yourself great I think, damage. I think you're right about that. I also think that, and maybe this is more true for older uh, pastors, particularly men would answer the question 
of who who do you have at that level of intimate belonging, they would limit it only to their spouse. And I want to suggest that's not enough. I need friends, ideally uh, peers who are in that intimate space with me. Yeah. Well, take it to, take it to a different level. And I could be, I may be wrong on this, but I've run in enough Christian circles long enough with with pastors who um, have maybe even literally or inadvertently taught that you don't, I only need Jesus. God knows, and that's enough. I don't need to share that with anybody else. That's between me and God. God and I've got that figured out. And so sometimes even the spouse is eliminated from that circle, that level of connection. Yeah. Which I think is completely heresy, you know. Yeah, and, uh, I was just going to say. That, that it's means, just, well, going, it's going a, back to the Imago Dei, if we're created in the image of God, that doesn't mean God's enough, because even God needed the other parts of the Godhead. Yeah, and I would say it's just like somebody who says that has not really spent enough time understanding uh, the Bible, right? And how we were designed, how the uh, the early church functioned, Um and the values uh, that Jesus promoted for us. I mean, all of that stuff. So hogwash, I say. Well, philosophically, so I don't know if we can answer this question, but so where do you, let's say just where do you start? Okay. So let, I would say the first three are the, probably the easier of the four. Obviously public is pretty simple yeah. and um, moving up, moving up. Where do you find that? How do you know? Well, how do you know um, in your connection with people? How have you decided, okay, this person's safe. This is someone I want to go deeper on this level with. Somebody I can trust and have a symbiotic connection to. So the blink response I have to that question is that it's just like any other muscle. It takes the right motivation, and then it takes intentionality and consistency, right? So I, I, I have to first understand why, why am I looking for a new kind of relationship? What's, what's my motivation? Uh, and it's not so I can use those for sermon illustrations or something else, right? It's because I believe that this is a component of me being whole. Uh, and then I ha- it takes practice uh, over time because we've all, those of us who have moved into those spaces, in fact, some of the people who are gun shy from having those kind of relationships are because they've had bad experiences with it, right? Yeah, that's, that, but, was, that was one of my follow-up questions. Like when you've been burnt, how do you get back into that rhythm or ever just say, I'm going to try that again because it yeah. backfired. You, you, the, the backfiring is a learning opportunity, right? So it, it's to use exercise more wisdom in uh, the next time that you try to find those people. Look, the kind of vulnerability that you and I have, especially with the group of people we meet with every year in Colorado, that's still a risk, right? I'm, oh, sure. I'm, at, I'm at the moment feeling some level of hurt uh, from somebody in that group. They don't, I don't think they even know about it, uh, just from an offhanded comment that was made um, at, at our meeting last May. That's how long ago it is, right? So there's still, there's 
I'm I'm still exposing my soft underbelly when I choose to be vulnerable with people like that. But that's the risk and the benefit great outweighs it. So you have to uh, you have to seek it out uh, and um, learn from those that don't go well and continue to practice it. So, I, you know, um, in, it, it helps to it helps that like that group that we're in and I have other relationships that are like that, as I'm sure you do, too, um, mm-hmm, yeah. that um, we have stated the purpose. We it, it didn't just coincidentally happen right we intent there's an intentionality to moving into that kind of space and especially for those of us who have some kind of a public platform which is true of all pastors even if it's a local public platform uh, we have to be intentional about stating the desire for that kind of relationship with the people we're pursuing it uh with if we hope to actually go there in a mutually helpful way. But I think you can do that. You can do that still and have boundaries. Can you not? Yeah. It just might become more, more like personal belonging, which is still really important. So, and you know, I, yeah, there's, you could, you could parse it down even further because there's stuff I'd share with my wife that I might not share with you. There's stuff I would share with you that I might not share with my wife. So, you know, yeah, there's probably different levels, but at some point the question is, am I willing, do I have people? The point we're talking about here, do I have people in my life? And I would suggest in addition to my spouse, if you're married with whom I can share intimate details about my life that I might with other people feel shame in sharing, but with this person, I do not experience shame. And I am able to be uh, truly aligned. Um, And we need to cultivate those relationships. Okay. So before we move on, because I'm still on that idea. So if somebody just heard that and said, I do not, yeah, I do not for whatever reason, you know, I remember I shared with um, a trusted individual within my church staff a few years ago um, some things uh, in my past, and it was used against me deliberately later on, mm-hmm. which makes you really go, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. So sure. that's one reason, one reason that I would be guarded. So lots yeah. of people listening have different reasons for being guarded. But if someone just answered, like, you know, in their head, listen to this podcast, I do not have that give them one place to start where where's the one thing you would do to start to you know small step i have to have at least two steps okay and this is not me using uh like spirit over spiritualizing something but i really do believe that step one is to pray about it and um, ask God to help lead you to the right people. Um, so this is why I need two steps because that's not enough in itself. That can't be the one step. <laughs> well, that would be is, faith without, that'd be a faith without work step. Yeah, but it is cr- a right. critical step number one. And then um, step number two is, uh, is to, you know, proactively look for, and I would say, it, 
it could start by asking, are there people in my life already that could move to this kind of a relationship? Are, is there um, a, a peer, a colleague? Uh, maybe it's somebody from another church. Maybe it's somebody from my own church staff. In fact, this is a good tie-in to my next uh, rhythm, and that's work to dismantle the myth that you can't be friends with the people you lead. I have greatly enjoyed over the years being very close, intimate friends with people that I am also their supervisor. And it, it is not, it, it's an old school myth that we can't be in that place. So maybe the person or people that you would be, look at, Model of Jesus, right? Jesus was most intimate. Who of all the people on earth that Jesus that Jesus had contact with, it was those three, right? But he was also leading them. And I think that uh, for many of us, the people that we could end up finding that level of um, intimacy with uh, could actually be on our own staff. So I was privileged enough a few years ago, 15 plus years ago, to have a, a board chairman mm -hmm. who was also a Fortune 500 CEO. Yeah, I've heard about him. I learned a lot from the man. Yeah. And I never really thought about until this moment, one of the first things he told me stepping into my new role was, you've got to hold your staff at arm's length. Right. Yeah, it's a total, it was a very common uh, myth and very much perpetuated throughout church world. I really think it, it really affected um, the, uh, the effectiveness of my leadership. Yeah. Because you, you didn't cultivate relationships, therefore you didn't cultivate trust to a level where people would completely work with you, work for you. Um, yeah. Because they didn't know you, you didn't know them, you didn't know what made them tick, you didn't really, you could not know, in pastoral speak, how could you possibly release their potentially equip them for this work of service if you don't have any intimate, real knowledge of who they are? Mm -hmm. And how can they trust you if you hold them at arm's length? Yeah. So I, I, I think you're right that it is a relic. That's a word you used in the email. It's a relic, that yeah. idea. I just wonder if that relic is still residual and it's oh. hanging on. Absolutely. For way too many people. Way right. too many people. Yeah. You know, there comes a moment in every cohort of the coaching program that I lead with ministry people. So we'll have 10 people sitting around a circle. And uh, at, in every one, usually somewhere in the first meeting, someone will be experiencing, will be sharing something vulnerable and will be experiencing a, heavily, a high level of emotion and often uh, struggling to get it together. And in that moment, I will, uh, I have a standard line that I will always insert. I will pause and I will say, I, I want to point something out for this person, but for all of you, we have this idea that if we are vulnerable in front of others, it will repel them from us. But I want you to notice the feeling you have towards this vulnerable person right now. And the fact that you're actually feeling attracted to them or drawn to them, maybe is a better word. Um, and the reality is, if we are being vulnerable 
with authenticity, back to the original uh, conversation we had about those two things not being the same. If we're vulnerable with authenticity, it draws people to us rather than repels them from us. Yeah, I think that authentic vulnerability is a catalyst for empathy. If I can put that into a sound, simple sound sound bite that I can, you know, yeah. put in a tweet later. But the, the, <laughs> empathy is empathy is one of our one of our lacking um, characteristics in our culture. I think it's growing. It's growing in the church. It's growing in U.S. culture, politics. You name it. Um, we are having a tough time seeing ourselves and others because we have painted each other into such a corner and we're not being vulnerable. What's funny is the irony is the irony is we're talking so much about it. People are mm. reading about it, but no one wants to go first. Mm. <laughs> we think it's a good idea, but no one wants to go first. And I think it's then, then potentially it is re actually that's creating a repel repelling um, environment. Mm. And um, I think that's the irony of the whole thing is we talk so much about it, but no one wants to be the first one to implement it. And so therefore we're growing more polarized. Yeah. I could be wrong, but it, it feels like that's where we're at. And it feels like pastors for their own life need it and could be a catalyst for creating it within congregations, you know, and culture as a whole, which I think the wide leadership in that role is so in a pastoral role is so important. You have so much more influence than you possibly think you do in people's intimate personal life with, with the, with this topic. For, yeah. First of all, for yourself, when, when people are listening to this, I do not want them to be applying this to my church and my leadership and my job description, but the outpouring of it or the extension of it is it naturally will, but just do it for you, for your own mental and spiritual health first, yeah. Yeah. you know, not because it's going to get you a promotion or keep you in it with a paycheck. So. Right. No, it's about wholeness and it's about alignment with our design and being the, some of the language I use on this kind of stuff is being the version of you that God has always dreamed you could be. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's really good. I talk about being the person God designed you to be instead of the person people expect you to be. Mm -hmm. You know, quit living up to somebody else's expectations and live up to your design. So say that again, the person God dreamed you to. God has use, always use dreamed you. Yeah. Being the person mm -hmm. that God has always dreamed you could be. Yeah. Some people can't even begin to think about that, Marco. Yeah. That, that idea, Fair that the idea yeah. is, well, that idea is just so foreign because they've not, they've not tasted that. Like it's like eating asparagus, right? You grew up I mean, in Michigan, I guess so you, just, you just eat asparagus. Of course, but I you've do. never tried it. You've never tasted it. You don't know how good it can be. And I just think there's so many people who've never experienced enough of it anyway that it becomes like enticing to continue. It certainly uh, requires an an assumption, a starting place that God has good things. God wants good things for us. And while many pastors preach that, not everyone who preaches that believes it in their deepest, darkest places. Yeah. Oh, that's just a whole nother theological. It is a whole nother. <laughs> Holy cow. I could, I could go off script right now on that topic and be, do know anyone any good because I just start throwing rocks. Wait, so. there's a script? I haven't been following this. <laughs> well, it's a script in my head, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not a real script. That's what we we don't follow scripts here. It's what Speaking of script, my uh, third thing in my email response to you. <laughs> <laughs> how's that? Um, I do think that when I reflect back, I worked at four churches and I've worked at two uh, ministry nonprofits. So I've had six six jobs like in my adult vocational life, not including other kid jobs and things like that. And uh, some of them were workplaces that invited me to be authentic and some of them were not. And when I look at that and I think about uh, the culture of those, the staff culture, I think, hey, listener, if you're pastor of a church, whether you're in the number one seat or not, is not germane to this point. If you want your whole congregation to move toward health and wholeness and vibrancy, it starts with your staff culture. That ends up leaking out and permeating everything else. And in yeah. order to address that, the rhythm is that you need to model authenticity with those that you oversee. You need to welcome it when it comes from those who lead. And this is the hard part of it for me, at least. That requires a no tolerance policy on teasing and shaming. Because if you have a culture where teasing and shaming is tolerated, not even encouraged, then uh, it will not be a space where people are willing to bring their authentic selves. You know, I think people will hear that and they would think, um, well, we don't allow teasing and shaming, right? They don't think they do. And so when I read that, I thought that may begin with being an awareness of the sarcasm you allow. Yeah, sure. I because mean, and you I and I give... love you and I love sarcasm, right? I mean, so I, it... I, I make a living on sarcasm. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, and then I get paid more when it goes from sarcasm to cynicism. So, <laughs> oh yes, it does. <laughs> but I also know how much damage I have done to people, either by my action or my inaction in this area. Yeah. Well, think think about those conversations, and I'm just thinking about them right now, when I should have spoken up, but mm -hmm. I didn't for multiple, re multiple reasons. Because I think, eh, you know, that probably wasn't as damaging as I think it was. But I don't know how they took that, you know, what, you know, get over it kind of idea, or I'll do that later. Because is it worth it at the moment in the context of the conversation with multiple people to go, listen, we need to pause right here. So it's the discernment of when to call it on the carpet at the moment publicly, or do I move that privately? Is there a formula in your mind to know when to do it? Is it always in the heat of the conversation um, or not? I think if we're in a group context, so let's say a church staff, but it could this could apply in many of other places too. I'm, I'm just thinking as you're talking. So this is a half-formed thought. It might be a pearl. It might be a poo. <laughs> um, the thought is anytime I exercise sarcasm or shaming in a group context with somebody, 
it's because of my desire for control. Now that might come out of insecurity or it might come from other motivations, but I use sarcasm as a tool to exercise control. And either to try to, if I'm leading the meeting, it might be because I want the focus to get back to me and away from that person who's drawing all the attention at this moment, or it could be lots of other kind of nuances on that. Um, but uh, I think that's the motivation and it's something that maybe I need to, all of us need to analyze within ourselves. Why is it that I might use not just sarcasm, but any any teasing or shaming that would erode a healthy and vibrant, authentic culture within our team? And some people might not think that they crave control. And so when I hear you say that, because um, there's times that I think I, I do crave control and it's in those moments and they come in waves for me um, that it's hard for me to say I crave control. It's easier for me to say at this moment, I'm feeling really insecure because I think insecurity might be the foundation of why we crave control. But funny enough, it might be easier for me at least to acknowledge insecurities than it is to acknowledge a need for control, which is the manifestation of my insecurities. But I'm, I've become aware of that now, uh, maybe mm -hmm. not 100%, but I have in the last few years of life, you know, decade or so, we all do hope grow a little bit as we age, become more aware of my insecurities. And I try to keep them in front of me and not pretend I don't have them anymore because some insecurities for me, I carry around with me like we very beginning of our conversation, inadequacies, um, feeling, you know, inadequate around you or whatever it might be. So either you clam up and say nothing or you step up and you say things that are inappropriate, sarcastic, shameful, harmful. But for me, that's an insecurity. For me, that's an insecurity issue for what it's worth in this conversation for people listening it might be something yeah. they can relate to. I don't know. Yeah. So, but you, you you talk about the idea of experimenting with authenticity. Um, and I really like this next point about people who might be impressed with you. And I really had to hold no, on might, to that sentence. It, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I apologies. Yes. Go on. No, in those con well, in those contexts where people might be impressed with you. And I think about that as a um an invited guest, an invited lecturer, speaker, keynote, whatever it might be, that puffs me up big time. And I like to hold on to those. You know, I surround myself yeah. in more of those moments um, because I can hide my insecurities behind. For me, I can hide my insecurities behind a performance or a microphone. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to get, I'm going to leave a green room speak, get on a plane and leave. And I don't have to leave you with anything about me that I don't want you to know. And so you talk about exercising or experimenting in those contexts with people who might be impressed by you. What does that mean? How do I, I do that? How would I experiment in that? And why is share, that important? Share, um, share more and more vulnerable bits about yourself. But the part of the, there's two, two 
aspects of this to pay attention to. One is the exercising that. Let's return to that. The other is the tension between uh, not uh, not using vulnerability as a manipulative tool because that's not helpful to them or it's definitely not helpful for your own growth. So it's trying to experiment with being more vulnerable with people who might be impressed with you otherwise if you you know are got it all together but in a way that is not manipulative again it comes I back think that's to a fine line that's a that's, it is that's got to really be a fine, fine line. line because because if you're already impressed with me and I share a little bit more about with you and it makes you more impressed I'm just feeding that thing potentially yeah and so it comes back to motivation again what is my motivation is my motivation to impress you or is my motivation because I want to move more toward my healthy whole self? Um, and so that I, it just has to be in constant check. It's an inner dialogue. It's prayer. Um, it's something to ask myself in preparation if the, if the sharing isn't spontaneous, but is part of my intended preparation it's to ask myself that why am I, stepping up and exercising this. Um, so yeah, there, but there is absolutely a tension there that has to be carefully monitored. It's like a, it's, it's like a dog that could destroy you or can cuddle by the fire with you. Right. I, I'm of the opinion thinking out loud with you that there are fewer people who can do that alone that exist it's an awareness issue. So going back to what you said at first, you need true friends around who you, who will call you on BS and different levels yeah. of intimacy, according to Edward Hall. So when you take that last level of intimacy, the deepest level of intimacy where a person will actually step up and say, this is a weakness for you. Uh-huh. You need to be aware of this. I wonder if, I don't wonder. I think that those two have to go hand in hand. The accountability that comes with the deepest levels of intimacy make it easier for you to possibly experiment with authenticity in a way that's not drawing attention to yourself, but helps you really see your motivation and yeah. where it lies. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And so then, that's why this is such a good recipe. These ideas are such a good recipe. They go hand in hand. They have to and go then, hand in hand. It's critical that we see it as a muscle to be built, right? So it's not like I can go from no uh, expression of authenticity and no uh, never sharing anything vulnerable by myself to excellent at it and always doing it with the best motivation and in the right places and everything, right? I, it, 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 there's a slow move toward that. Here's the parallel that um, I noted in my notes there. So uh, two years ago, my doctor told me that my diabetes was out of control and that um, I was on too many meds for it. My insulin I was taking every day was too much and that we had to deal with it through weight loss. And um, uh, she wanted to assign me to a weight loss support group. And that sounded like the seventh ring of hell to me. And <laughs> I, I knew I had to find something. So my initial motivation was 
avoiding the weight loss support group. And I decided I'm going to try doing push-up trunches and bicycles. My very first morning, two years ago in October, I did 10 push-ups and I did 10 crunches and I did 20 bicycles. And it just about killed me. And I walked around all noodly all day long as a result. I kept at it and I added to it and I started to see progress. That became a new, even better motivation was the progress I was seeing. In fact, I, I'm not at risk of being added to the weight loss support group now, but I'm still very much uh, finding better motivations, right? This morning, I did 450 push-ups, 800 crunches, and 1,200 bicycles, and I've lost 75 pounds. I'm off insulin completely and all diabetes meds, and it's, I, it was a muscle that had to be built over a long period of time, right? I just want to I just want to speak up here and say the people who are calling bullshit on you doing 450 push-ups this morning. <laughs> um I've witnessed it. Not that I've watched <laughs> you do them. I've witnessed you before breakfast at a gathering um make the time before you start your day to join us in any kind of meal, cigar, beverage. Um do that. And as you were saying that. I was thinking about my own health and exercise. One thing that I need to work harder on that I think will, that is germane to our whole conversation is maintaining a motivation because mm. there's a lot of people who in their diet, their exercise, their behavior, their leadership, whatever it might be, they plateau and then they drift backwards even if they're moving towards a different level of authenticity, vulnerability, whatever, whatever we're talking about, they, they make progress and then they slide back into bad habits because they haven't found the new motivation along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's finding an initial motivation, but I yeah. think it's very healthy and normal that as you make progress, God will reveal better and new motivations that were well that will can keep you going yeah i think that takes you well or takes us well into this next point because you, we don't hear from god to get new motivations unless we're intentional or deliberate about doing that well and so we've got to as you say keep our tanks at a minimum half full yeah you half have to full. think about that language before i finalize that sentence <laughs> I mean, the reality is our jobs in ministry, of course, you and I are recording this just before Christmas. And this is a time that for some people in ministry is the easiest part of the year. For me, this is the easiest part of the year because the ministry people I work with are completely unavailable. For other people, this is one of the hardest parts of the year and your tanks, of course, will get lower. So I just, I wrestled with what's that minimum. And metaphorically, I'm saying we need to develop the kind of practices and particularly for me, that's reflection, silence, life-giving hobbies and relationships that will keep my tanks at a minimum of and I'm just suggesting half full. I don't want to get into that red zone that uh, where yeah. the 
blinkers are on and the alarms are sounding. We're, we're, yeah, that's Be- right. Where they're, they're recommending the weight loss support group. Yes. And I don't, because I know that I don't make good decisions. I am much more vulnerable to sin, to uh, lack of wisdom, to self-destruction, self-destruction, to all kinds of stuff. If I'm in that red zone or that like tank at quarter or less. Right. So that's what I'm saying. And I, the, the focus here is less on how you monitor whether your tank's quarter full or half full. It's more on those rhythms, those practices. Um, and I think it's silence, reflection, not study. You studied for your sermon. That's That might be life-giving for you, but it's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about stuff that is not work-related. I think that's hard. Um for pastors in particular, because it's it goes back to the same idea that we've been um, inappropriately taught and held on to the idea that we keep people at arm's length, keep our staff at arm's length. You can't be friends with people. The same thing is that a pastor's a, sa- a servant, a sac- sacrifice is 100% all the time. You're on 24-7. You're always a pastor. It's not a job. It's who you are. And as a result, a lot of pastors don't take time for themselves because yeah. they are not a priority. Yeah. They've I been taught that they're not a priority. I mean, I see it in my ministry coaching work all the time. So many youth workers, which is the main people I'm working with, don't take a day off. They work se- seven days a week. And they their, their answer is always, it's just there's so much work. There's, I, I, there's so many demands. Listen, I would suggest that prioritizing silence, meditation, personal retreating, life-giving hobbies, that and Sabbath um, are a win for everyone. They're clearly a win for you in the way that we're talking about here today. They're a win for your congregation because you will be a, you will move toward being uh, the, the you that God has always dreamed you could be. Listen, here's the crazy thing, but it's theologically accurate. It's a win for God when you choose to prioritize these practices because God is, God benefits. Can I say that? God benefits when you are more your authentic self, let alone the fact that you have more of an opportunity to put your attention on God rather than your to-do list. So it's just a win for everyone. I think we can apply Jesus amendment to the greatest commandment here. When we don't talk about this, I don't think in a healthy manner, when he says, love the Lord, your God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, neighbor as yourself, even in the sentence self comes last, right? Mm -hmm. Structurally, grammatically comes last, but practically, theologically self has to come first. And when you put yourself first, you're a better neighbor. When you put yourself first, you will make time for God. Yeah, well, you sometimes know here, here, here's the irony: you put God first, and sometimes you don't make any time for yourself. Now that is backwards. Yeah, I would suggest in that verse that self comes last only in the order, but not grammatically. Grammatically, as yourself means that is the first. It's the that's the presupposition to the or the right. prep, preposition yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, really good. All right, last few minutes. I want to learn Woo. something. 
We got we have anterior we, if if listeners still with us. <laughs> okay. If not, Here's they can the listen later. Sing interior cingulate, dude. Enlighten me as we wrap this up. Yeah, you've probably heard me talk about this. You just don't remember. Let me tell you about three parts of your brain. Prefrontal cortex, right up here behind your forehead. For those listening, I've got my hand on my forehead. Logic and rational thoughts. What separates us from all the rest of the animals is uh, it's the brain CEO or the executive office. It's things uh, like wisdom, decision-making, prioritization, impulse control, focus, all that kind of stuff. Back here at the base of your brain, right above your spine, is a little tiny almond-shaped thing called the amygdala. The amygdala is the fear center of your brain. Your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex, for reasons I don't really fully understand, uh, they don't get along. And they don't communicate or coordinate or collaborate with each other. And most commonly, one overrides the other. In the middle... Right behind, it's kind of like a blanket behind your prefrontal cortex is this anterior cingulate. Anterior cingulate acts as a moderator between the amygdala, fear, and the prefrontal cortex, logic and rational thought. But what has been discovered by neurologists in the last five years, super fascinating, is which of those three parts of your brain is most developed has an enormous impact on your faith. These, by the way, were not Christian neurologists who discovered this. So it's one of these all truth is God's truth kind of thing. If you have a highly developed amygdala, you've let fear run in your life, you will have a fear-based faith, probably legalistic, driven by an, avoiding the wrath of an angry God. If you have a highly developed prefrontal cortex, you'll have a logical and rational faith that you can explain well, but will lack compassion. If you have a highly developed anterior cingulate, it allows you to understand and experience God as personal, compassionate, and other than yourself. In other words, I'm not God. God is other than me. And develops the ability to notice the needs of others and be compassionate toward them. Now, all, all that's interesting, but I've been thinking in the last year or two about what are the implications of that for ministry leadership. Because, at least reflecting back on my own decades of leadership, the times when I have blown it, pretty much always, maybe always, but pretty much always, are because I was lacking in compassion. And so I believe I will be a more effective, and we might even say authentic, leader. If I want to step into authenticity Compassion has to be a part of that. Compassion toward myself and others. Mm -hmm. and That's what I was going to say. That, it's got to start with your own compassion towards yourself. Yes. And that requires yeah. a developed anterior cingulate. Now, a final thought, or you can talk about it however you want. That, uh, how do we develop that? Two, two ways. The first, by far, the, the researchers found maybe eight ways to develop it, but the first is miles ahead of all the rest, and it's prayer and meditation. Um, they found that even 10 minutes a day of um, uh, meditation or prayer, but not like petitionary prayer, more like reflecting on the character of God or something like that, um, 10 minutes a day, six days a week, grows the size and strength of your anterior cingulate by 50% within two months. 
Talk about the renewing of our minds. We are being invited into partnering with Jesus on shaping our own minds for a more full and whole life. It's it's really cool and wild. Yeah. And then the second one, by the way, which is a big drop from the first one, is they call it spiritual singing. I would call it worship. Um, They said it can't just be listened. It's not listening to spiritual music. It, it actually has to, you have to be intoning it. You have to be singing it. Um, so I've, I've been trying to encourage people, look, start a practice 10 minutes a day of meditation. Reflect on a scripture verse or on a characteristic of God. I, what I often do is sit down and try to identify what's a need that I have right now and then write a two-sentence prayer uh, about that need, uh, particularly about God's character to meet that need, and then use that as a breath prayer for 10 minutes. And I set my iPhone alarm so I don't have to wonder how much time is left. Um, and then I uh, and then end by singing out loud. It can be quiet, but singing out loud, one or two worship songs. You will rewire your brain in order to be more compassionate toward yourself, to tamp down fear, and to then be more authentic with other people. It's pretty revolutionary stuff. So I have certainly heard you talk about it, not remembering that you've talked about it. And then a couple that you're saying here with the research I've been doing the last couple of years with like Dr. Caroline Leaf. Mm. And what we're learning in neuroscience about rewiring your brain. Uh-huh. And um, I'm thinking about contemplative prayer. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, I'm just for myself and um, what I've been doing. Because, you know, the last couple of years, I've, I've went through my own ups yeah. and downs and topsy-turvy kind of, kind of stuff. Right. To the point where I would say that my faith was, I was, it was in jeopardy of becoming lost until I learned silence. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't even going to God in silence. There was no motivation of my interior cingulate and my faith. Sure. It was just, I was finding, I was finding a newness, a freshness, uh, a Romans 12 renewing of my mind, even not knowing I was doing it, Marco. And so when you say that, like the number one thing you can do, now I set my iPhone alarm so that I stop. I no longer wonder how long I've been doing it. Like, is it 10 minutes yet? It's like, I've got to stop because it's been 40 minutes. Uh-huh. You know, I've got to get on with my, my day. Mm. So I think that's hard for pastors to slow down. I think it's hard for people in general to slow down. I think you know, for... past, listen, I think pa- all, all pastors can do this. Absolutely. Just, it's just like my first 10 push-ups. You don't, hearing that you do it for 40 minutes and don't want to stop might freak some people out, but that's the 450 push-ups. Correct. Yeah. Right? So here, find a time in your day when you think you could do 10 minutes and schedule it. I find for uh, me to be silent, first thing in the morning is not the time. It is the time for me to do push-ups, but it's not a good time for me to do reflection, meditation, silence, I get too distracted by the things that I have to get going on. For me, I found that the best time is 10 minutes after my lunch. So I take lunch, 
And then I know I've already done my morning to do stuff. I already know what the day holds, but right after lunch, it's pretty easy for me to set aside if I've scheduled it to set aside 10 or, or more building up to more minutes. So wrapping up so you can get on with your day, cause it's going to be lunch soon and you're going to need 10 minutes. <laughs> Everything we've talked about, um, is deliberate. Yes. It has to be deliberate. You are not going to trip into authenticity. Absolutely. It's not going to accidentally, you know, overwhelm your life where you become authentic overnight. And so, I mean, just thinking through the list, and I think I'll put this list in like, if you're okay with it, I'm going to just put your four things, five things here in the show notes so people can just review them, look at them. Yeah. A couple of notes to like Edward Hall and Proxemix and where they can find some more information. But the, uh, like I said at the very beginning, I knew you would give me something for me. And, um, and all at the same time, affirm what it is we're trying to accomplish in this podcast and the Authentic Pastor Project. But the word I'm walking away with, again, for myself, for practical purposes, is to elevate my intentionality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my second thing, my second thing is, um, I need to review my motivation because yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, I feel like I, I, I plateau a lot. Mm-hmm. I go 90% a lot and then I give sure. up on the last 10%. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so that's what I'm, I don't know what the listeners are walking away with, but what I'm, I'm, I'm literally walking away with increasing my intentionality and reviewing my motivation. Oh, that's man, what that's... I'm going to take from this conversation, bro. That, that right there, right? That could have, we could have had a very short podcast chat if we had, if I had just said that. Cause you're right. That well, does I, summarize it all. Well, I'm not saying that Kelton's not going to like edit out the first 55 minutes. <laughs> there you go. The shortest Perfect. podcast ever on the Authentic Pastor was Marco and Tim. It's four and a half minutes long. Enjoy. You know, of course. Five Minutes with Marco is the name of my podcast. I do record a five-minute podcast, though. That's the link yeah, I'm I li- used to. I, you know, I like to hear myself talk more than that. <laughs> I love the sound of my own voice. Hey, as always, never enough face-to-face. I'm glad you're coming to Michigan for some family time to um, watch the University of Michigan yeah. in person. I mean, with your family. When? And um, on December 31st, and it'll be nice to have you in this state. I'll feel safer. Nice. There you go. But, hey, again, just seriously, as always, you honor me and um, with your time and your friendship. Thanks for it. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So much. Blessings on you listeners.